0: Chapter Three of When William Came by Saki. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter When William Came by Saki. Chapter Three, The Metzky Tsar. "'I was in the early stages of my fever when I got the first inkling of what was going on,' said Yeovil to the doctor, as they sat over their coffee in the recess of the big smoking-room, just able to potter about a bit in the daytime, fighting against depression and inertia. Feverish as evening came on, and delirious in the night. My game-tracker and my attendant were both buriats and spoke very little Russian.' and that was the only language we had in common to converse in in matters concerning food and sport we soon got to understand each other but on other subjects we were not easily able to exchange ideas one day my tracker had been to a distant trading store to get some things of which we were in need the store was eighty miles from the nearest point of railroad eighty miles of terribly bad roads but it was, in its way, a centre and transmitter of news from the outside world. The tracker brought back with him vague tidings of a conflict of some sort between the Metzky Tsar and the Angliski Tsar, and kept repeating the Russian word for defeat. The Anglisky Tsar I recognised, of course, as the King of England, but my brain was too sick and dull to read any further meaning into the man's reiterated gabble. I grew so ill just then that I had to give up the struggle against fever, and make my way as best I could towards the nearest point where nursing and doctoring could be had. It was one evening, in a lonely rest-hut on the edge of a huge forest, as I was waiting for my boy to bring the meal for which I was feverishly impatient, and which I knew I should loathe as soon as it was brought, Then the explanation of the word Metzky flashed on me i had thought of it as referring to some oriental potentate some rebellious rajah, perhaps who was giving trouble and whose followers had possibly discomfited an isolated british force in some out-of-the-way corner of our empire and all of a sudden i knew that nemetzki german emperor had been the name that the man had been trying to convey to me i shouted for the tracker and put him through a breathless cross-examination he confirmed what my fears had told me. The Metzky Tsar was a big European ruler. He had been in conflict with the Angliski Tsar, and the latter had been defeated, swept away. The man spoke the word that he used for ships, and made an energetic pantomime to express the sinking of a fleet. Holland, there was nothing for it but to hope that this was a false groundless rumour that had somehow crept to the confines of civilisation. "'In my saner, balanced moments it was possible to disbelieve it. "'But if you have ever suffered from delirium, "'you will know what raging torments of agony I went through in the nights, "'and my brain fought and re-fought that rumoured disaster.' "'The doctor gave a murmur of sympathetic understanding. "'Then,' continued Yeovil, "'I reached the small Siberian town towards which I had been struggling.' There was a little colony of Russians there, traders, officials, a doctor or two, and some army officers. I put up at the primitive hotel restaurant, which was the general gathering place of the community. I knew quickly that the news was true. Russians are the most tactful of any European race that I have ever met. They did not stare with insolent or pitying curiosity, but there was something changed in their attitude which told me that the travelling Briton was no longer in their eyes the interesting, respect-commanding personality that he had been in past days. I went to my own room, where the samovar was bubbling its familiar tune, and a smiling, red-shirted Russian boy was helping my Buriat servant to unpack my wardrobe, and I asked for any back numbers of newspapers that could be supplied at a moment's notice. I was given a bundle of well-thumbed sheets, odd pieces of the Novovrymy, the Moscovy Vyadonsky, one or two complete numbers of local papers published at Perm and Tobolsk. I don't read Russian well, though I speak it fairly readily. But from the fragments of disconnected telegrams that I pieced together, I gathered enough information to acquaint me with the extent of the tragedy that had been worked out in a few crowded hours in a corner of northwestern Europe. "'I searched frantically for telegrams of later dates "'that would put a better complexion on the matter, "'that would retrieve something from the ruin. "'Presently I came across a page of the illustrated supplement "'that the novo publishes once a week. "'There was a photograph of a long-fronted building "'with a flag flying over it, labelled the New Standard, floating over Buckingham Palace. "'The picture was not much more than a smudge.' but the flag, possibly touched up, was unmistakable. It was the eagle of the Nemetsky Tsar. I have a vivid recollection of that plainly furnished little room, with the inevitable gilt icon in one corner, and the samovar hissing and gurgling on the table, and the thrumming music of a balalaika orchestra coming up from the restaurant below. The next coherent thing I can remember was weeks and weeks later discussing in an impersonal detached manner. Whether I was strong enough to stand the fatigue of the long railway journey to Finland. Since then, Holm, I've been encouraged to keep my mind as much off the war and public affairs as possible, and I've been glad to do so. I knew the worst, and there was no particular use in deepening my despondency by dragging out the details. But now I'm more or less a live man again, and I want to fill in the gaps in my knowledge of what happened. You know how much I know and how little. Those fragments of Russian newspapers were about all the information that I had. I don't even know clearly how the whole thing started. Yeovil settled himself back in his chair, with the air of a man who has done some necessary talking, and now assumes the role of listener. It started, said the doctor, with a wholly unimportant disagreement about some frontier business in East Africa. There was a slight attack of nerves in the stock-markets. Then the whole thing seemed in a fair way to being settled. Then the negotiations over the fair began to drag unduly. There was a further flutter of nervousness in the money-world. Then one morning the papers reported a highly menacing speech by one of the German ministers, and the situation began to look black indeed. He'll be disavowed, everyone said over here. "'but in less than twenty-four hours "'those who knew anything knew that the crisis was on us. "'Only that knowledge came too late. "'War between two such civilized and enlightened nations "'is an impossibility. "'One of our leaders of public opinion "'had declared on the Saturday. "'By the following Friday, "'the war had indeed become an impossibility, "'because we could no longer carry it on. "'It burst on us with calculated suddenness.' "'and we were just not enough "'everywhere where the pressure came. "'Our ships were good against their ships, "'our seamen were better than their seamen, "'but our ships were not able to cope with their ships "'plus their superiority in aircraft. "'Our trained men were good against their trained men, "'but they could not be in several places at once, "'and the enemy could. "'Our half-trained men and our untrained men "'could not master the science of war at a moment's notice.' and a moment's notice was all they got the enemy were a nation apprenticed in arms we were not even the idle apprentice we had not deemed apprenticeship worth our while there was courage enough running loose in the land but it was like unharnessed electricity they controlled no forces it struck no blows there was no time for the heroism and the devotion which a drawn out struggle however hopeless can produce the war was over almost as soon as it had begun After the reverses, which happened with lightning rapidity in the first three days of warfare, the newspapers made no effort to pretend that the situation could be retrieved. Editors and public alike recognized that these were blows over the heart, and that it was a matter of moments before we were counted out. One might liken the whole affair to a snap checkmate early in a game of chess. One side had thought out the moves, and brought the requisite pieces into play. The other side was hampered and helpless. But its resource is unavailable, its strategy discounted in advance. That in a nutshell is the history of the war. Yeovil was silent for a moment or two. And then he asked, And the sequel? The peace? Their collapse was so complete that I fancy even the enemy were hardly prepared for the consequences of their victory. No one had quite realised what one disastrous campaign would mean for an island nation with a closely packed population. The conquerors were in a position to dictate what terms they pleased, and it was not wonderful that their ideas of aggrandisement expanded in the hour of intoxication. There was no European combination ready to say them nay, certainly no one power was going to be rash enough to step in to contest the terms of the treaty that they imposed on the conquered. Annexation had probably never been a dream before the war. After the war, it suddenly became temptingly practical. Warum nicht? became the theme of leader writers in the German press. They pointed out that Britain, defeated and humiliated but with enormous powers of recuperation, would be a dangerous and inevitable enemy for the Germany of tomorrow. While Britain incorporated within the Hohenzollern Empire, would merely be a disaffected province, without a navy to make its disaffection a serious menace, and with great tax-paying capabilities, which would be available for relieving the burdens of the other imperial states. Wherefore, why not annex? The Baron nicht party prevailed. Our king, as you know, retired with his court to Delhi, as emperor in the east, with most of his overseas dominions still subject to his sway the british isles came under the german crown as reichsland a sort of alsace lorraine washed by the north sea instead of the rhine we still retain our parliament but it's a clipped and pruned down shadow of its former self with most of its functions in abeyance when elections were held it was difficult to get decent candidates to come forward or to get people to vote it makes one smile bitterly to think that a year or two ago we were seriously squabbling as to who should have votes. Of course, the old party divisions have more or less crumbled away. The Liberals, naturally, are under the blackest of clouds for having steered the country to disaster, and to do them justice it was no more their fault than the fault of any other party. In a democracy such as ours was, the government of the day must more or less reflect the ideas and temperament of the nation in all vital matters, and the British nation in those days could not have been persuaded of the urgent need for military apprenticeship, or of the deadly nature of its danger. It was willing now and then to be half-frightened, and to have half-measures, or one might better say quarter-measures taken, to reassure it. And the governments of the day were willing to take them. But any political party or group of statesmen that had said, that danger is enormous and immediate, the sacrifices and burdens must be enormous and immediate, would have met with certain defeat at the polls. Still, of course, the Liberals, as the party that held office for nearly a decade, incurred the odium of a people maddened by defeat and humiliation. One minister, who had less responsibility for military organisation than perhaps any of them, was attacked and nearly killed at Newcastle. Another was hiding for three days on Exmoor and escaped in disguise. And the Conservatives? They are also under eclipse, but it's more or less voluntary in their case. For generations they had taken their stand as supporters of throne and constitution. And when they suddenly found the Constitution gone and the throne filled by an alien dynasty, their political orientation had vanished. They're in much the same position as the Jacobites occupied after the Howdivery annexation. Many of the leading Tory families have emigrated to the British lands beyond the seas. Others are shut up in their country houses, retrenching their expenses, selling their acres, and investing their money abroad. The Labour faction again are almost in as bad odour as the Liberals because of having hobnobbed too effusively and ostentatiously with the German democratic parties on the eve of the war, exploiting an evangel of universal brotherhood which did not blunt a single Teuton bayonet when the hour came. I suppose in time party divisions will reassert themselves in some form or other. There will be a socialist party. And The mercantile and manufacturing interests will evolve a sort of bourgeoisie party, and the different religious bodies will try to get themselves represented. Yeovil made a movement of impatience. "'All these things that you forecast,' he said, "'must take time—considerable time. "'Is this nightmare, then, to go on for ever?' "'It's not a nightmare, unfortunately,' said the doctor. Is a reality, but surely a nation such as ours—a virile, highly civilized nation with a, an age-long tradition of mastery behind it—cannot be held under for ever by a few thousand bayonets and machine guns. We must surely rise up one day and drive them out. "Dear man," said the doctor, "we might, of course, at some given moment, overpower the garrison that is maintained here and." "'Seize the forts. "'Perhaps we might be able to mine the harbours, "'but what then? "'In a fortnight or so, "'we could be starved into unconditional submission. "'Remember all the advantages of isolated position "'that told in our favour while we had the sea dominion. "'Tell against us, now that the sea dominion is in other hands. "'The enemy would not need to mobilize a single army corps "'or to bring a single battleship into action. A fleet of nimble cruisers and destroyers circling round our coasts would be sufficient to shut out our food-supplies. "'Are you trying to tell me that this is a final overthrow?' said Yeovil, in a shaking voice. "'Are we to remain a subject race like the Poles?' "'Let us hope for a better fate,' said the doctor. Our opportunity may come if the master power is ever involved in an unsuccessful naval war with some other nation, or perhaps in some time of European crisis, when everything hung in the balance. Our latent hostility might have to be squared by a concession of independence. That's what we have to hope for and watch for. On the other hand, The conquerors have to count on time and tact to weaken and finally obliterate the old feelings of nationality. The middle-aged of today will grow old and acquiescent in the changed state of things. The young generations will grow up never having known anything different. It's a far cry to Delhi, as the old Indian proverb says, and the strange half-European, half-Asiatic court out there will see more and more a thing exotic and unreal the king across the water was a rallying cry once upon a time in our history but a king on the farther side of the indian ocean is a shadowy competitor for one who alternates between potsdam and windsor i want you to tell me everything said yeovil after another pause tell me Hollem, how far has this obliterating process of time and tact gone seems to be pretty fairly started already I bought a newspaper as soon as I landed, and I read it in the train coming up. I read things that puzzled and disgusted me. There were announcements of concerts and plays and first nights and private views. There were even small dances. There were advertisements of houseboats and weekend cottages and string bands for garden parties. It struck me that it was rather like merrymaking with a dead body lying in the house. "'Eauville!' said the doctor, you must bear in mind two things. First, the necessity for the life of the country going on as if nothing had happened. It's true that many thousands of our working men and women have emigrated, and thousands of our upper and middle class too. They were the people who were not tied down by business, or who could afford to cut those ties. But those represent comparatively a few out of the many." The great businesses and the small businesses must go on. People must be fed and clothed and housed and medically treated, and there are a want wants and necessities supplied. Look at me, for instance, however much I loathe coming under a foreign domination and paying taxes to an alien government. I can't abandon my practice and my patience and set up a new in Toronto or Allahabad and if I could, some other doctor would have to take my place here. I or that other doctor must have our servants, and motors, and food, and furniture, and newspapers, even our sport. The golf-links and the hunting-fields have been well-nigh deserted since the war, and they are beginning to get back their votaries because outdoor sport has become a necessity, and a very rational necessity, with numbers of men who have to work otherwise in unnatural and exacting conditions. That is one factor of the situation. The other affects London more especially. But through London, it influences the rest of the country to a certain extent. You'll see around you here much that will strike you as indications of heartless indifference to the calamity that has befallen our nation. Well, you must remember that many things in modern life, especially in the big cities, are not national but international.' in the world of music and art and drama for instance the foreign names are legion they confront you at every turn some of our british devotees of such arts are more acclimatized to the ways of munich and moscow than they are familiar with the life say of Stirling or york for years they have lived and thought and spoken in an atmosphere and jargon of denationalized culture even those of them who never left our shores they would take pains to be intimately familiar with the domestic affairs and views of some galician gipsy dramatist and gravely quote and discuss his opinions on debts and mistresses and cookery while they would shudder at your john peel as a piece of uncouth barbarity you cannot expect a world of that sort to be permanently concerned or downcast because the crown of charlemagne takes its place now on top of the royal box in the theatres or at the head of programmes and state concerts "'and then there are the Jews.' "'There are many in the land, "'or at least in London,' said Yeovil. "'There are even more of them now "'than there used to be,' said Hollam. "'I'm to a great extent "'a disliker of Jews myself, "'but I'll be fair to them "'and admit that those of them "'who were in any genuine sense British "'who remain British, "'and have stuck by us loyally "'in our misfortune, "'all honour to them. "'But of the others,' The men who by temperament and everything else were far more Teuton or Polish or Latin than they were British. It was not to be expected that they would be heartbroken because London had suddenly lost its place among the political capitals of the world and become a cosmopolitan city. They had appreciated the free and easy liberty of the old days under British rule, but there was a stiff insularity in the ruling race that they chafed against. Now, Putting aside some petty government restrictions that Teutonic bureaucracy has brought in, there is rarely in their eyes, more license and social adaptability in London than before. It has taken on some of the aspects of a no man's land, and the Jew, if he likes, may almost consider himself as of the dominant race. At any rate it is ubiquitous. Pleasure of the cafe and cabaret and boulevard kind. The sort of thing that gave Berlin the aspect of the gayest capital in Europe within the last decade. That is the insidious leaven that will help to denationalise London. Berlin will probably climb back to some of its old austerity and simplicity. A world-ruling city with a great sense of its position and its responsibilities. While London will become more and more the centre of what these people understand by life. Yeovil made a movement of impatience and disgust. "'I know, I know,' said the doctor, sympathetically. "'Life and enjoyment mean to you the howl of the wolf in a forest, the call of a wild swan on the frozen tundras, the smell of a wood-fire in some little inn among the mountains.' "'There's more music to you in the quick thud-thud of hooves on desert mud, "'as a free-stepping horse is led up to your tent door, "'than in all the dronings and flourishing that a highly-paid orchestra "'can reel out to an expensively-fed audience. But the tastes of modern London, as we see them crystallise around us, "'lie in a very different direction. "'People of the world that I am speaking of, "'our dominant world at the present moment, herd together as closely packed to the square yard as possible, doing nothing worth doing, and saying nothing worth saying, but doing and saying it over and over again, listening to the same melodies, watching the same artists, echoing the same catchwords, ordering the same dishes in the same restaurants, suffering each other's cigarette smoke and perfumes and conversation, feverishly, anxiously, making arrangements to meet each other again tomorrow, next week, and the week after next, and repeat the same gregarious experience if they were not herded together in a corner of western london watching each other with restless intelligent eyes they'd be herded together at brighton or dieppe doing the same thing well you will find that life of that sort goes forward just as usual only it's even more prominent and noticeable now because there's less public life of other kinds yeovil said something which was possibly the Bariat word for the nether world Outside, in the neighbouring square, a band had been playing at intervals during the evening. Now it struck up an air that Yeovil had already heard whistle several times since his landing, an air with a captivating suggestion of slyness and furtive joyousness running through it. He rose and walked across to the window, opening it a little wider. He listened till the last notes had died away. "'What is that tune they have just played?' he asked you'll hear it often enough said the doctor a frenchman writing in matin the other day called it the national anthem of the fait accompli chapter three